Well, I'm going to ask Terry uh, if he's going to come up. He's going to read the word for us this morning that we'll be looking at. But I thought it'd be good if we do the whole word, get it in our heads before I start. So, welcome, Terry. It's Matthew 24. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see these things, he asked? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming, I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumours of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth, birth pains. Then you will be handed over to, to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, Look! Here is the Messiah, or there he is. Do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. 
Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it's near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the Master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thank you, Terry. So this message is simply called The End. But it's not actually that simple. I am going to confuse you this morning. Is that okay? At least I hope I'm going to confuse you this morning, because this sure confused the life out of me. Can you take me down just a little bit, if that's okay? The thing is, when we're dealing with prophecy, and we are this morning, we must remember we see through a glass darkly. Now, by the end, I don't want to leave you confused. I hope the confusion will lead to some focus for us all. This message has been a bit of a journey for me. Um, towards the end of last year, I felt prompted to preach on Matthew 24. And when I initially read it, at first I started getting very excited, thinking, you know, you read this, Jesus gives an itemized progression of the events of the ends, including statements like, immediately following these days. And I thought, whoa, what if we just break this down? Take Jesus' statements on their own. What can we learn about the end? Can we get a checklist of events that have to happen before Jesus comes back? And then it all went to pot because I started to study it. More and more, my original plan and my original thoughts on this passage were challenged and changed. 
You see, the trouble is, is we can't take Jesus' statements in isolation because they weren't made in isolation. So the message I've ended up with is a lot different to the message I expected to bring this morning. But for me, it's helped clear up a lot of ways in which I think about the return of Jesus. Now, every word Jesus says, every word is true and accurate. We have to start there or we're heading into dangerous territory. Jesus is not wrong in anything he says. If Jesus says it will come to pass, guess what? It will come to pass. Or it already has. And the more I looked at this passage, the more I began to realize a lot of this already has. Because the first issue we run into here is Jesus is answering a question that his disciples have posed to him. The problem is, is the disciples, the little tinkers, they ask two questions. And Jesus answers both questions at the same time. Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple, and he says, not one stone will be left on top of another, and they want to know more. So the first question they ask, number one, is, tell us when these things will be. Specifically, a reference to the destruction of the temple. But then they go and add another question. And what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? Have you ever had somebody text you and they've asked you two questions in the text? And as you're writing your reply, you know, you know what's going to happen. They're going to get the bits you've answered mixed up. Well, it's a little bit like that. Jesus answers both questions at the same time. Incidentally, isn't it strange? They ask about what will be the signs of your coming. But he's not gone anywhere yet. In fact, they haven't clicked that he's going to go away in the way he's going to go away. He's spoken about it enough, but they were not expecting his death. But they do seem to be expecting that there's a time he goes away and comes back, and then it ushers in the end. Hello. The key to understanding Matthew 24 is the events Jesus first speaks about. And that's the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. About 27 years after Jesus made these predictions. Now, reading it today, we know some of this is about the destruction of the temple. And some of this is about the return of Jesus. We know this. However, when you try to work out which bit is which, well, that's when I started to get a bit confused. And the first thought I had was, Matthew, why didn't you make this a bit easier? Why didn't Matthew separate it and make it a little bit more clear so we could understand? 
Because you know Matthew, Matthew was not one of those who avoided editorial comments. In fact, Matthew throws in a lot of editorial comments like, this happened so that this prophecy would be fulfilled. He loves doing that. Matthew, why didn't you do that here? And the answer to that's obvious. Matthew is written before 70 AD. It's actually written between 55 and 65 AD. So Matthew is writing when the destruction of the temple is still a future event. It's not happened yet. The reason Matthew doesn't treat the destruction of the temple and the return of Jesus as separate events is very simple. Matthew didn't know. He didn't know. Nobody did. The lack of clarity on the part of Matthew, actually he assures this, ensures Matthew must have been written before the destruction of the temple. Otherwise he'd have pointed out which bit was which. And when you start to look at the events surrounding the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, you start to see not only how much Jesus is actually talking about that, but also how absolutely amazingly accurate Jesus' predictions were. In fact, when the early church, church starts seeing some of these signs, they follow the advice Jesus gives. When Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, and they did, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop <coughs> not go down, and so on. They listened to this, they took the advice, and they got out of there. And because they did, the early church survived something they might not have survived if they didn't take Jesus' advice. Now, before we get in, dig into this, I just want to clear something else up as well. When we're talking about prophecy, and we, we've discussed this at recent SSE nights, for those who've been there, you'll get this. For those who haven't, you'll get this. <laughs> prophecy can have an initial fulfillment, but also a further fulfillment. A lot of Daniel came to pass with the Maccabean Rebellion. But also, some of it was about the destruction of the temple, and some of it's about the end. It doesn't confine itself to just the one. And the same applies to what Jesus is saying here. Just because some of the things Jesus said are fulfilled in the destruction of the temple, doesn't mean they're not also about his return. But it does mean they don't have to happen again for Jesus' prophecy to be accurate because it's already been fulfilled and already been proven accurate. I'll give some examples in a moment, but it's very important we get this when we're talking about prophecy. We can't do a checklist of things that have to happen or Jesus can't come back yet. Because that would mean Jesus can't be imminent at any time and Jesus can't come back yet. And Jesus warned us exactly against that type of thinking in this passage. How are we doing? Are we confused? We're doing good? You're doing better than me. Wonderful. 
So at this point, I started thinking, okay, how do we know which bits have already been fulfilled? Well, there's places we can look at to find that information. But to do it, we have to take a little step outside of Scripture. Why? Because for most of the Bible, 70 AD was a future event. Therefore, the Bible does not talk about it. It's not included in the book of Acts, even though it has huge effects for Israel and the church. Why? Because the book of Acts is already written, it's already circulating, it's already been read, it's already published. All of this had already been sent out. All of the Gospels, except for John, were already written at this time. Paul's letters were written. In fact, Paul's been dead for five or six years by the time we hit 70 AD. So Paul doesn't talk about it. Peter has been dead for a few years. Revelation doesn't really help us because that's about events still to come. So the destruction of the temple, not, not mentioned. Although, whenever it does mention the temple, remember John's writing about it, knowing the temple's been destroyed, so therefore the temple at some point must be rebuilt. Completely lost where I was there. So, because Revelation looks ahead, it does help us understand Matthew 24 and things that are similar going on in it, we can see if any of the events Jesus said are projected forward by John. But to get a better picture of what happened in 70 AD, we have to step a little bit outside of Scripture. Is that okay? Great. And we look at what the historians of the time recorded and said about the destruction of the temple. Well, then it starts to get very interesting. And it also starts to get a little bit weird. I'm not going to lie. This is going to get weird. Two great sources for finding out what was going on at the time are the Jewish historian Josephus, who was not a Christian, we need to make that clear, and the Roman historian Tacitus, who was actually regarded as the greatest Roman historian. Now, we can immediately go, oh no, Josephus. And our gla eyes glaze over and go, we're going to get a history lesson. But you see, looking at historians from around this time helps us see the events that are not reported in Scripture. And they widen our picture of what's going on. That's very handy. <coughs> so let's look at some of the things that Josephus and Tacitus mention that shows how accurate Jesus' prediction was and then ask the question, well, were any of these carried forward into Revelation? First one. We'll not do them all because, as you're aware, Terry read, and it's quite a lot. For many shall come in my name. Did you know, even in the book of Acts, this was going on? This was happening. In Acts 21, 38, some people, when Paul's up at the temple, mistake Paul for an Egyptian who incited a rebellion. Well, that guy who they thought Paul was, who he wasn't, 
That was a guy who led 30,000 men into the desert who died in the desert. He led a rebellion. He was a false prophet, a false messiah. In Acts 8, 9 and 10, we read of Simon the sorcerer who boasted to be the son of God. There was a guy called Shimon ben Kosiba. I imagine I'm pronouncing that wrong. This guy led the revolt against the Romans. That led to the destruction in 70 AD. So everything kicked off because of this guy, Shimon ben Kisoba. He was a false messiah. He had someone proclaim him to be the Christ. From Josephus, we can actually learn that during the conflict with Rome, false messiahs were so common that they were taken and killed almost every day. Talk about many coming in his name, claiming the title of Messiah for themselves. Jesus predicted it and it came to pass. So what about if we look forward? Does Revelation pick up on this? Well, actually, in chapter 13, we read of the two beasts who deceive people and lead them astray. So Revelation does talk about false messiahs and false prophets, but only two of them. Only two. That's not many. That's two. So while false messiahs could be a sign of the coming of the end. Other than the two, they don't have to be. Next one. Wars and rumors of wars. Around about this time, things really went wrong in Israel. Like, big time. The emperor Caligula, he ordered his statue to be placed in the temple. Now, this happened years ago with the abomination of desolation, yes? So, you'd imagine you're living in Jerusalem at the time. You hear Caligula wants to put his statue in the temple. What are you thinking? I know what I'm thinking. I'm out of here. <laughs> now, it was interesting. It would have been the abomination. But Caligula died before it could happen. So, it never happened. But when it was first ordered and refused by the Jewish people, the Jewish people said, no way. Guess what? There was rumors of war on the horizon. Jews and Syrians went to war over areas like Caesarea. 20,000 were killed. The retaliation from Israel against Syria was a massive slaughter. And then the retaliation back again, another 13,000 Jews were killed. The Samaritans and the Galileans, they were battling each other. The Jewish people rebelled against Rome from 66 AD onwards. Rome itself was in a period of utter war. Between 66 AD and 69 AD, there was what was known as the Year of Four Emperors. There was widespread turmoil right throughout the Roman Empire. All of this leads us into the events of 70 AD. Let me tell you, there were wars, and there were rumors of wars. Jesus predicted it, and it came to pass. 
Now in Revelation 6, verses 3 and 4, we read this. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. This seems to connect to this. But this isn't rumors. This is all-out war. So rumors of wars could be a sign of the end times. But guess what? It doesn't have to be. Next one. Famines and earthquakes in various places. In Acts 11, verse 28, the prophet Agabus says, there's a famine coming. And he prophesies it. The disciples respond to this by taking a collection for the church in Jerusalem, which actually was delivered by Barnabas and Saul. That collection was needed because when the famine hit, it was intense and it was severe. It was actually mentioned by several historians. And according to Josephus, it was so severe, many, many people in Jerusalem died. <coughs> but thanks to the prophecy given to Agabus, the church was helped. Earthquakes? Well, <laughs> talk about earthquakes. I mean, every time you see the news at the moment, you do think earthquakes in various places. Well, back then, there were a lot of earthquakes going on. There was one in Crete, one in uh, Smyrna, Miletus. I'm going to say all of these wrong. Chios, Samos. There was two in Rome which is actually mentioned by Tacitus. One in the Odyssea, one in Colossae, and there was a terrible one in Judea, which is mentioned by Josephus, that was accompanied with storms, winds, lightning, and made many people believe the end was near. Famines and earthquakes in various places. Jesus predicted it, and it came to pass. Now in Revelation 6, 12, we get this. When he opens the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. Sackcloth. And the moon became like blood. The sixth seal is not lots of earthquakes in various places. It's one mega earthquake. Famine certainly seems to be an element in Revelation, but again, it's not lots of famines. One big one. So famines and earthquakes in various places could be a sign Jesus is coming back. But Jesus can come back without them. In the book of Luke, when we talk about this, same, this whole same passage, we get an extra sign, and I just want to quickly look at it. Luke 21, 11. There'll be earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences, and this bit. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Terrors and great signs from heaven. What on earth is this? Well... Josephus talks about signs in the heavens. Now I'm taking this direct from Josephus. And bear in mind, this has been written down for thousands of years about the destruction of the temple. But it sounds 
and I know it's going to sound weird. And I don't know what to do with this. There was a star resembling a sword over Jerusalem. Now a sword and a cross looks quite similar. And Jesus said, the sign of the Son of Man in their heavens. <coughs> there was a comet that was visible for over a year. At Passover, one of these leading years in, there was a light shining in the temple for about an hour. And then at that same feast, at that same Passover, and if you can wrap your head around this one, help me because I can't. It's reported that a cow was led into the temple and gave birth to a lamb. If you have further questions about this, <laughs> I don't have answers. The heavy eastern gates of the temple, these big heavy brass gates, opened of their own accord. And at Pentecost, the priests reported in the temple there was a huge noise and a voice that said, we are departing from here. This has been written down for thousands of years. I'm like, why is this the first time I've heard this? There was a prophet who appeared, this farmer who appeared and started pronouncing war to Jerusalem. He stood in the temple and said, a voice from the east, a voice from the west, a voice from the four winds. Oh, Jesus said something about the four winds. A voice against Jerusalem and the sanctuary. A voice against the bridegroom and the bride. A voice against all the people. And he'd say it again and again and again. So they beat him. They flogged him. And he wouldn't stop saying it. He was beaten daily and wouldn't stop crying war over Jerusalem for seven years until they stoned him to death just before the temple was destroyed. Even Roman historians talked about fire coming from the sky down on the temple. The general Titus who led to the assault on the destruction of Jerusalem refused his victory wreath that you get when you do that because he said, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. I was just an instrument used by an angry God because of the things he'd seen. I don't know about you, I hadn't heard a lot of this before. We never talk about this. And I don't know what to do with it. Other than I can see how accurate Jesus predicted the events of 70 AD and the events leading up to it. It's amazing how accurate Jesus was. So much so, the church in Jerusalem went, you know what? I think it's time to get out of here. And they did. So accurate that revisionist scholars go, well, there's no way Matthew could have been written before 70 AD. It's too accurate. And of course, prophecy doesn't exist. It must have been written. You see, when, you, when you're looking about uh, Matthew, most scholars believe this must have been written in the early 100s. They only believe that because they don't believe in prophecy. Idiots. Now, the thing I'm presenting here is not a new way of looking at these prophecies. You go back to old commentaries from 100 years ago, longer, it's full of this information. It's just today we don't really focus on it. 
when you look at it, a lot of what we view as the end times, it's already happened. Now, that's not to say just because it's been fulfilled once doesn't mean to say it can't be fulfilled again. It can. It might be stuff that's still to come, but it doesn't have to be. There's so much more. Persecution comes up in Revelation. <coughs> the gospel preached to the ends of the earth, like Jesus said. Again, this is one of those things that we just don't talk about. In Revelation 14, it talks about the gospel being preached to the ends of the earth. But guess what? It says an angel does it. Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth. Get the phrase in here. To every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of judgment has come. And worship him who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. I've read Revelation so many times. That's never jumped out at me like it did now. Sometimes we think, well, Jesus can't come back yet. The gospel hasn't been preached to the outer ends of the earth. That's a little tick box that we've created. It says here, if we don't get the job done, an angel's going to get it done. There's nothing hindering Jesus coming back at any time. The book of Revelation picks up on a lot of Matthew 24 and projects it forward. But anything <coughs> that has been fulfilled once can and might be fulfilled again. But it doesn't have to be for Jesus to be accurate. So that brings up a great question. How do we know which ones are which? And I was hoping this morning I'd give you an answer on that. But I've come to realize something. The answer to that question is, we don't know. We don't know. The early church didn't know. When the early church saw the abomination of desolation about to take place, and they got out of there, they thought, this is it. The church has never known. Which means, and this is a very big thing, don't trust anyone who says they do. Because they don't. Definitive statements about when Jesus is coming back must be avoided. But second of all, this should change the way we wait. If we treat the end times like a checklist that we've worked out because we're so clever. For example, if there's no earthquakes going on right now, which I know there is, we've still got time. If the gospel hasn't been preached to the ends of the earth, you can put off repenting about that thing until tomorrow. Because you know what? You've got time. That is not the way Jesus told us to wait. Not knowing when the master will come is the key to waiting correctly for him. Jesus wants you to be ready at any time. He doesn't want us to know the time. He wants us to be ready. 
it is not for us to know. Our job is just to be ready. Once you click with this, once you click, okay, earthquakes could be part of it, but don't have to be, suddenly the end can be a lot closer than you expected. And this all comes to a conclusion at the end of Matthew 24. First of all, concerning that day, Jesus says, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as it was in the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man. The coming of the Son of Man will be unexpected, like a thief in the night. People have read so much into what Jesus said here as when he said, as it was in the days of Noah, and have picked up on all kinds of weird stuff. Like, oh, in the days of Noah, there was the Nephilim. Well, the Nephilim must come back. Oh, aliens and Nephilim. Honestly, that's a real thing that people have said. Or, well, Noah was shut up in the ark, therefore the church will be shut up in a safe place. Now, Jesus qualifies what he means by this. He says, just as it was in the days of Noah, no one's going to see it coming. That's what Jesus meant. Let's not get weird. Jesus actually says the reason why. He says, people were just getting on with life, and then it's over. They had no thought for God, and then it was over. It's going to be that sudden, that quick. Jesus then said, but know this, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. When is the Son of Man coming? At an hour you do not expect. Listen, we can study the end times and study and study and study. But if Jesus said it will come at a time you do not expect, guess what? You're not going to expect it. The point here of all of this is the unexpected coming. If you knew the time, if you could point to the signs and say, this is the moment, then many would choose that time to put themselves right with Jesus. You'd make sure you dealt with sin. You'd make sure you dealt with all the stuff that you've got going on. But I tell you, I know people. We'd leave it to the last minute, wouldn't we? We'd get as much out of life as we could until the last minute, because that's human nature. The reason we don't know is that we should be living a life 
that's prepared whenever. It doesn't take Jesus to come back for your life to end. A life committed to Christ should be a life committed to Christ and ready at any time. Jesus ends with this. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? Whom the master has set over his household to give them food at the proper time. Blessed is the servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know and will cut him to pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's a right way to wait and a wrong way to wait. We need to be doing the work of the master now. We need to be doing all we can to love people now. That's the right way to live. To live the life of the faithful servant. Doing all you can to love your master and love people. Doing what Jesus said. Because we realize the boss is coming soon and we need to look busy. Is the wrong way to wait. The wicked servant has this attitude of, well, the master's delayed. So you know what? I'll get on with things the way I want to do them. I'll treat people how I want to treat them. And I'll get it all sorted by the time he comes. The not knowing is important. Because not knowing means we must live right now. We must be right with God today. If you're looking for a checklist of signs, that can have an absolutely negative effect on your weight. Because we can put off sorting things out with Jesus that we need to sort out. Thinking, oh, we've got time. It's not happening yet. None of us, none of us have tomorrow guaranteed. If something needs right, putting right in your life, it needs putting right now. We can't get obsessed with the signs, although Jesus said we're to watch and pray. But readiness is not checking off the signs off a list. Readiness is loving others. Readiness is doing the work of the Father. Readiness is spreading the gospel to those who will perish without. Readiness is feeding each other, praying for each other, caring for each other. 
Readiness is fleeing sin. Keeping right with <laughs> right with God. And seeking holiness. It's the word I can't get away from this morning. Holiness. Is holiness your pursuit this morning? Because I'm telling you, holiness is not something we can put off to another day. We need to live today the way you would live if the end was tomorrow. I believe if we get that right, when the unexpected time comes, you know, Jesus said, blessed is the servant who the master finds doing his will. The secret to understanding Matthew 24, the secret to understanding the return of Jesus is not working out when Jesus is coming back. It's knowing absolutely in your heart he will. And he could come at any time. It's knowing that if you were a follower of Jesus, whether it's tomorrow, next year, 30 years, or a thousand, that we live in obedience to our master because we are always ready. When we live that way, we can honestly pray. And I mean honestly pray. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. If we should take anything away from Matthew 24, I believe it should be that. We can't put off repentance. Repentance is not for tomorrow. Repentance is for today. The thing that you want to do for God, that you're putting off, it is not for tomorrow. Don't be like that servant who let things slide because he thought he had plenty of time. I tell you this morning, the master will come back at an hour we do not expect. And I don't know about you. When he finds me, I don't want him to find the servant who let things slide. I don't want him to find the servant who put things off that he should have dealt with. That had allowed things to go on that should not be there anymore. When do we put that right? Right now. That's the way we should be living. Can I ask you to stand, church? Lord, I thank you that we do not know the day or the hour. So that, Lord, we can live a prepared life. Lord, I pray every day we are prepared. 
And Lord, I do pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus.